Okay, so we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're working our way through um, through these these what will be twenty eight chapters of this of this gospel. And today is part seventeen. And uh, as we got to chapter five, uh, if you have your Bibles open there, you'll, you you might have a little subtitle in your Bible that says the Sermon on the Mount. And so chapters five, six, and seven are the Sermon on the Mount. And we kind of slowed our pace down at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount uh, because Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount uh, with this, this uh, sequence of statements. Uh, and if your Bible has subtitles, your Bible probably says uh, the Beatitudes. And, uh, and so we've slowed down to try to give proper attention to these, uh, to these statements uh, before we uh, pick our pace back up and keep moving uh, through Matthew's gospel. Uh, we're rec- we recognize that the word beatitude is not a common word in our culture. So just real quick, uh, how do we get that word? Well, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. And this word that you see at the beginning of ch- uh, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you see the word blessed. Well, that Greek word is the Greek word makarios. Uh, Makarios is the Greek word. Greek, the Greek Bible was translated into Latin, and the Latin word is beatus. And you can see how beatus is where we get the word beatitude. And then eventually the Bible was translated into English, and when it was translated into English, most English versions translated that word with the word blessed. And so that's how we got the word beatitude, uh, and just for a little bit of background. But what is a beatitude? Uh, Well, the definition that we've been using for a beatitude is that they are a description of the good life from Jesus' perspective. They they are not divine blessings bestowed upon you. They're not commands. They are, as one person put it, they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. And we're invited in. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus goes up on the mountain and then sits down. And this is what an authoritative teacher does. He, that's a position of authoritative teaching. And then he gives his vision of the good life. In a lot of ways, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And he starts off with these statements, and he's saying, blessed is this person, blessed is that person. In, in our culture, maybe the best word, uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington suggests that the best word is flourishing. And that what Jesus is doing is he's actually seeing individual people, and he's pointing them out and saying, Congratulations, way to go. That's a flourishing person. And then he rolls through uh, a number of statements revealing what those flourishing people look like. Uh, It feels upside down, though. Many of these uh, beatitudes are not things that we would volunteer for. I mean, he starts off by saying, flourishing are the poor in spirit. And you say, who who wants to be poor in spirit? That doesn't sound flourishing. Uh, But when we walked through that beatitude, we we identified that what's going on there is that the person who's poor in spirit is one who recognizes that the deepest problems in their life and in the world are bigger than them. They they are poor in spirit. They recognize that they cannot solve uh, their biggest problems. Then Jesus says, flourishing are those who mourn. And again, who's raising their hand to be somebody who's, who's mourning? Um, But Jesus is revealing to us that those who mourn, that's people who lament what is broken. And so Jesus says, when you're living your life in a way to where you look around and you see tragedy and death and sickness and hurt and pain and betrayal, when you see all those things and you actually mourn over that, and you recognize that this is not how the world was supposed to be. The original world that God made was good. And when sin flooded in, sin brought all of these things. And we lament what is broken. Jesus says that's a flourishing life because that's the condition of the world. 
He says, uh, flourishing are the meek, those who are humble and gentle. He says, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, that, that's somebody who wants their whole person aligned with God's will, with God's nature, and God's coming kingdom. In, a, in the next chapter, Jesus uh, shares what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And when he prays the Lord's Prayer, he says, like, he talks about the Father's will. Like, the, the, we want God's will to happen. Well, th- th- that's somebody who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They, they want God's will. They want God's nature. They want the coming kingdom. They want their life aligned with all of those things. They're hungry for it. They're thirsty for it. And then last week, we saw that flourishing are those who are merciful, or flourishing are the merciful. And that, that identifies those who have compassion on people in need, compassion on those in need. And we recognize that, man, we first need to receive the mercy of God poured out on us in Christ. But then as we receive that mercy, a mark of the people of God is that they send that mercy back out, that they're receivers and then they're givers. And Jesus looks at those who are merciful and says, that is a flourishing life. And so next, Matthew 5, 8, is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's just start with the first phrase, uh, the, the pure in heart. Um, now, I, I want to acknowledge something that's, that's serious. Um, I, I understand if you just seeing that phrase, reading that verse, if there's a little dynamic at play uh, that makes you uncomfortable, that might even make you break out in a little bit of a, of a, of a cold sweat. And, and that, that's because the, the, the word pure or the word purity actually has some pretty significant baggage uh, in our current cultural uh, moment. Um, you might be familiar with the phrase purity culture. And if you were to look into that term, what, what you'll find out is that it really got popular in the 90s. But there was a movement from a few decades ago that's been titled uh, the uh, purity culture. And it was an effort... Uh, to really send home this message on purity, to work really, really hard at helping especially teenagers and and young people make choices about sexual purity. So ideas like, you know, saving themselves for marriage. Uh, There were things that were called purity balls that that came up. And so instead of going to the prom, uh, you would go to a purity ball. There were purity rings uh, where uh, teenagers would be invited to put a ring on their finger that was a a sign of a a pledge for uh, for them to live a, a pure life. And, you know, I'm 47, and so I was just coming into high school in the early 90s. And so this was kind of during my formative years. And a few years into that, a a book, um, maybe, you know, quite a few books were written on this subject, but uh, the book uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye might be the most popular uh, book uh, that was written here. And, um, And if you're hearing me talk about this and you've never heard of purity culture, so far you might be like, man, this sounds great. Like, these sound like excellent ideas to to offer to teenagers or to suggest to teenagers. And you wouldn't be wrong. There's there's a lot of great ideas that were flowing uh, right along with the purity culture movement. However, um, it it ended up uh, leaving a lot of baggage in its wake. Uh, It ended up striking, uh, leaving a lot of hurt uh, part of the reason is, is because it, it seemed to land uh, quite a bit more directly on women, on, on teenage girls, uh, than it did on teenage boys. And you fast forward a, a decade or two, and there's quite a bit of carnage uh, that exists around this idea of purity culture. Um, 
in, in, in the, you know, what, what, what made this more difficult is that while purity culture was kind of at its height during the same time, uh, there was a string of scandals that were happening. And some of these scandals were by the very leaders who were promoting purity culture. And maybe you're familiar, uh, more familiar with the, the Me Too movement or the, the Church Two movement that have uh, come up in recent years. And, and those movements are not perfect, but they have empowered more women to share their stories and to drag a lot of wicked behavior into, into the light. Uh, and it has been heartbreaking. Um, and maybe, maybe you have had the chance to sit with someone who has uh, experienced some of the harm uh, that these movements are speaking to. Uh, I have. And it is, it is, it is heartbreaking. Uh, the range of people that have been involved in, in these scandals. I mean, there's government officials, there's famous people, there's pastors, there's priests, there's Boy Scout leaders, there's teachers, there's coaches, there's relatives, there's camp, camp directors, there's global leaders. It seems like it, was, it, it has popped up in almost every sector. And it's had tragic realities. Um, and a lot of hypocrisy. It's revealed a lot of hypocrisy in the world and in the church. Um, and I just want to say, we've said it here before, but I want to say it again, that if you've been abused at all, especially if that abuse came from someone you trusted, an authority figure in your life, I, I, I am so sorry. And as a church, we want you to know that we are here to meet with you. We are here to hear you. We, we, uh, we want to take the steps to pursue justice. We want to take the steps to bring healing into your life. This is not something that we have tried to hide from. We're still not trying to hide from it. We don't ever want to hide from it. In a lot of ways, the church should have led the way on these movements. The church should have been the first one to turn the lights on. They should have been the first one to bring these things uh, to bear. Um, and, and, you know, that it's, it's, a, it's, a tragic, it's a tragic reality. Uh, maybe you saw just this weekend, Gallup came out with some, uh, some polling data on institutions. And institutions in America are at historic lows in regard to public confidence. Uh, like almost none of them are trusted. I think there's three organizations that are over 30% trust level in our society. And I'm not saying this is the only factor, but it's part of it. You know, when you, when you hide things and you try to cover things, that, that has consequences. You know, one of the other consequences is what you might refer to as the boomerang effect, where, you know, maybe that, that whole movement towards purity culture uh, ended up having some uh, uh, damage and baggage. And so then it was this movement towards sexual freedom. And, and, you know, yeah, I should be able to do whatever I want. And uh, sexual, you know, purity culture was bad. Th th this is good. And I think we can all recognize that, that that kind of pendulum swing is almost never a healthy strategy. You know, Martin Luther said that the, the church is like a drunk man who falls off one side of the horse just to get on it and fall off the other side. And, and in some ways, the church's engagement with the subject of purity has kind of seemed like that over the last few decades. And so if you see the word pure or you see the word purity and you, and you have some like a little check in your spirit, I'm not sure if this is why, but it might be why. It might be the fact that the people that talked to you most about purity ended up being the people who were actually hypocrites and actually lying about it and actually covering it up or maybe engaging in it themselves. And if that's part of your story, I, 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 am, I am really glad that you're here and I want you to know that we're not ignorant to those dynamics. 
So we don't have to try to address everything with purity uh, at all, and we don't have to try to address it all today. Uh, purity, it, Jesus does bump into purity a few different times here over the course of the next few chapters. So this will come up again. But for our purposes today, when, when the Bible uses the term pure or purity, I, I want you to hear this. The Bible is not singularly focused on sexual purity. Uh, yet, yes, it includes sexual purity, but when the Bible uses the term pure or purity, it's not just about sex. Now, our culture has m uh, massive problems with sexuality. And so uh, the fact that purity bumps into that, sure it does. But, the, but the, the, the subject of purity is much, much bigger. And I think that you're going to see that here in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 8. So the Greek word that Jesus uses uh, for pure is the word katharos. And it means clean. That, that, that's a really good description of it, is, is, is clean. Jesus is saying, flourishing are the clean. Uh, so, some uh, Bible scholars trace the uh, etymology of this word to a Hebrew word, uh, the word that you might be familiar with, the word kosher. And there are a few times in Greek translations where the word kosher is translated as katharos, and so there, there's, there's a, 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 a connection there between these two words. And for a Jewish person, if they use the word kosher, you know, they're referring to foods that are clean, fruit, foods that are proper, foods that are proper for them to eat. And so Jesus uses this term, and he says, uh, flourishing are the pure, flourishing are the clean. But please do not miss Jesus' whole phrase. He says, flourishing are the pure in heart. Jesus is actually wanting to talk about your heart, pure in heart. You know, the teachers of Jesus' time, the Jewish leaders, they, they, when, when they talked about blessing, when they, when they would give uh, these statements of blessing, they, they would bless scripture study. It, the law was highly regarded by the Jewish people. And if a Jewish leader was standing up, they would bless the person who studies scripture. Uh, they would bless somebody who uh, abided by the Sabbath laws. And there were a lot of Sabbath laws. And they would say, you know, blessed is the person who studies Torah. Blessed is the person who keeps the Sabbath. Blessed is the person who observes these uh, dietary uh, restrictions. That, that would have been the common response in the Jewish community that Jesus grew up around. But notice what Jesus does in the Beatitudes. It's kind of remarkable. Jesus never really puts his finger on a specific activity. He says the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like what are those actions? Jesus isn't singling out individual things like that. He's more, it's, 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 he's not doing what the other teachers of his time would have been likely to have done. He's pointing more, he's congratulating people more at their center. That they are poor in spirit, that they are mourning what is broken, that they are meek, that they are hungering for righteousness, that they're merciful. And here, that they are pure in heart. These aren't specific activities as much as they are a kind of way of being. See, Jesus is not so much celebrate a person's actions as he is their core, their heart. So then the next question is, what is the heart? Jesus uses the Greek word, if you know cardiology, 
the, the Greek word cardia is where cardiology comes from. So in our culture, we use cardiology. I mean, that's talking about this fist-sized organ in your chest that pumps blood. And Jesus is using the word that could be used to refer to that, but Jesus is not using it that way. He's not using it literally. He's using it figuratively. And in the culture he was in, this would have been completely understood that the nature of the heart or the idea of the heart is actually like the control center of your life. That the way Jesus meant this and the way his culture would have understood this is that it is the center of a person. It is the collective mind, will, emotions, conscience. It's, it's, it's the core of who you are. It is the control center of your life. Jewish traditions of Jesus' day emphasized external purity. Jesus is not going after less than that, but he is after, he is congratulating something, celebrating something more than that. Jesus is celebrating something deeper, the pure in heart. Now, what I want to try to do is, is, is flesh this out a little bit. Uh, what, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Because you might just think that don't, don't do bad things. Like, just don't do bad things. Like, that's purity. That's being pure. And I think the Bible has a broader sense of it. And so I don't want you to be confused. The purity of heart is a purity that also shows up uh, in, in your hands. And how do we know that? Well, it's by uh, exploring some scriptures and seeing how the Bible treats this subject. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, before I give you the specifics, you know, it's helpful if you think of the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you think about those four books and you say, man, those four books, what they are doing is they are revealing to us who Jesus is, what he taught, how he lived, what he did on the cross, and the fact that he then rose again and that he's going to come back at a future date. The Gospels give us all of those details, a very Christ-centric uh, uh, narrative. Uh, they're revealing to us who Jesus is, what he did on this earth, the fact that he died for his enemies, the fact that he rose again, and the fact that he's coming back. The fifth book of the New Testament then, Acts, is this, this book that it's like Jesus, uh, very beginning of Acts, Jesus goes back to the Father. In the, in the second chapter, the Spirit comes and fills the people of God, and the rest of the book of Acts is showing us kind of the aftermath of Jesus's work in teaching. What, what, what is this that Jesus brought to the earth? And what we find out is that this gospel is going to spread and it's going to go all over the place. And that spirit-filled believers, followers of Jesus, are going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts, it, it's very uh, in, intentional in its process, but Acts shows us that the gospel gets all the way to Rome. And by the end of Acts, the gospel has made it to Rome, which was the epicenter of the world at that time. And so Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, gives us this, this, uh, the storyline continuing and seeing this gospel spread all the way to the center of the world. Then what's the rest of the New Testament? The rest of the New Testament are authors like Paul and John and Peter, two of Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude. They, 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 they are writing these letters, often their letters, and they are trying to tease out, what, what does this all mean then? What, who is this Jesus and what has he done? And as, as you read, as you read these New Testament letters, you find Paul revealing things like what Jesus did for us on the cross actually can, can bring about your relationship with God being justified, being declared right, that the war between you and God could actually be over because of what Jesus has done. 
Uh, we find out that because of what Jesus has done, we can actually be adopted into the family. That we can become sons and daughters of God that have an inheritance that you can't imagine. We find out that sin can actually be forgiven. We find out all kinds of things about our fellow brothers and sisters and how God wants us to live together. And so the rest of the New Testament is revealing, it's kind of teasing out or explaining who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for us. So I want to take advantage of those books and say, what do we learn about purity as the New Testament un unfolds? And James uh, is a good example, man. He gives us a great picture of the purity of the heart. Uh, that Jesus is celebrating in Matthew chapter 5. And you already heard it mentioned uh, during the missions time that James chapter 1, verse 27, uh, and it'll be on the screen behind me here. James 1, 27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, you might be breaking out into cold sweat for another reason now. Uh, the, the word religion... I know we live in a culture where it's like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I don't like organized religion or whatever. Listen, don't let the word religion get under your skin at all, because what James is actually talking about is your relationship with, with God the Father. And that's clearly what he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. So he's, he's saying, what does a right heart relationship with God look like? What, what does it look like? And this is what he says that uh, it is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You, you might call this a social purity or even a social justice, social uprightness, social cleanness. And this is so essential. Je Jesus cares about this. He cares deeply about this. If you went back to the Old Testament, uh, you know, we've talked about this many times, but uh, throughout the Old Testament, God is frequently saying to his people uh, what we refer to as the big four, the sick, the poor, the immigrant, and the fatherless, that God looks at his people and says, they don't have good care in this society. They don't have good rights in this society. And I want you as my people to have an eye out for them. And throughout the Old Testament, God's consistently calling Israel to care about those groups of people. And then along comes Jesus, and Jesus cares about those groups of people. And now here we are in the, towards the end of the Bible, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, guess what? You want to know what the real heart relationship with God looks like? You want to know what it looks like in real time? There's a social sense. There's a recognition of these groups of people that are in need, and we care about them. And he identifies the orphans and the widows. And so uh, essential picture of what uh, that, that uh, purity of the heart looks like is showing up in your hands. But James is not done. James 1.27 keeps going, and he uses the word and. And this is, it's, it's, it's so crucial. This is what he says. He says, Pure, you know, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so James gives us two aspects of this pure religion, of this pure heart. And you might call this personal purity or personal holiness. That, that what James is actually saying is what we find in a lot of other places in the Bible as well, which is that your decisions matter. That what, what you do with your body matters that your sex life matters the way you spend your money matters your habits matter the, these personal components matter and, and and james is not shying away from it because jesus didn't shy away from it and so yes there's this social sense but there's also this personal sense 
And a lot of people seem to care about one or the other. But it's really rare when you find somebody who cares about both. I mean, if you were just taking a, a, a litmus test of our current culture, you went downtown Traverse City and did some sidewalk interviews, you would quickly find out that a lot of people are a fan of the social purity. They are a big fan of social justice. They think it's right to care for the hurting. And they're not wrong. They, we should care for the hurting. But if you were just doing a litmus test, this, this sense of personal purity, that, that, that's, not, that's not so popular. That's not such a hot idea. And yet James includes them both when he describes what, pure, what a pure heart is, what a pure relationship with God the Father looks like. And so it's important to hold them together. James does. Let, let me give you one more quick, quick example. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul is writing to one of his protégés, and this is what he says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So James is, or, uh, uh, Paul is writing to, one, to a guy that he's mentored. His name's Timothy. And he says, pursue all these things, righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with your brothers and sisters who call the, on the Lord from a pure heart. Right after this verse, Paul says this, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. And then he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. I mean, we should have gotten this and you know, put this on our social media at the, in the middle of 2020. Listen to those words. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You know, as, as Paul writes to his protege, he looks at him and says, I want you to run from this stuff, and here's how I want it to look. I want it to look like somebody who's chasing after peace with the people of God who are calling out from a pure heart, and I don't want you to get caught up in stupid arguments. I don't want you to be a quarrelsome person. I don't want you to, to sow dissent. I don't want you to sow disunity. I want you to be about, you, you, you to be a person who's about the, the, the work of peace. You know, John Stott says this idea of pure in heart is it is also referring to our relationships. And so you could call this a relational purity. That this idea of being pure in heart, it's saying that in your relationships with others and with God, you, you, are, you are like, you're free from falsehood. If, if we hop back to the Old Testament, Psalm 24 uh, in verses 3 and 4, this is what the psalmist tells us. That there's a person that he defines as someone with clean hands and a pure heart. And he says, you know what, the, you know what they do? You know how they live? They do not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. You, you, you put all this stuff together, and there's a sense in which what, what Jesus is referring to when he talks about somebody who's pure in heart, yet, yes, it's, 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 it's avoiding doing bad things. I mean, that, that's part of it. But it really has this sense of like being clean, of being clear. You, you could even say of being transparent, of having, you know, not, not being devious, not being underhanded, that you're navigating the world with a clean conscience, that you're assuming the best about other people, that there's a, a purity to your control center, that you're navigating the world, not trying to blow things up. You're actually, you're actually navigating the world with a, with a clear conscience, seeking peace and, and righteousness. One commentary said that you could put this in the category of trusting, trusting. 
that someone who's pure in heart is someone who trusts. They're, they're not naive, but, but they're a person who trusts. See, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is celebrating an inside-out purity, a purity that starts on the inside and has incredible impact on the decisions that you're making in your life, personal decisions, personal holiness. But then it flows out. It flows out into the people that you're doing life with. And you're not quarrelsome, and you're not creating arguments, you're not creating disunity, you're actually pursuing peace together. And then it even flows all the way out to the groups uh, like the Big Four, to people that maybe you've never even met, that deserve justice and mercy, and you care about them. Jesus is celebrating that inside-out purity. Well, let's, let's close with this, this, the end of the verse. You know, it's important to realize that for Jesus, being pure in heart is talking about a direction, not perfection. He's talking about direction, not perfection. And let me just tell you, that is really good news. It's really good news for you, and it's really good news for me. Because you might be here today, and you might not feel pure. You, you, you might say, man, do you know what's happened to me? Do you know the decisions I've made? I don't feel pure at all. Or you might be, a little bit more self-aware of, 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 your, of, of your own uh, heart in, in, in uh, your current state. And you recognize that, boy, the Bible is telling us that our hearts are not consistently anything. We're, we're not consistently pure. We're not consistently seeking God. In the, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things that I want to do are the things that I end up not doing. And the things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this? I am a motivational mess. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. My motivations are a mixed bag. And in the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to give us very specific examples where he shows us that even if your actions are one way, often your motivations aren't. That your heart, uh, it deceives you and it lies to you and it betrays you. And so Jesus is not talking about perfection. He's talking about a direction. Where does that direction lead? Where does the direction of the pure in heart lead? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a number of commentators that see this beatitude as the climax of the beatitudes. They, they see this kind of this lead up, that the, 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 the previous ones were all pretty negative. That if we said, you know, raise your hand, who here wants to be in the morning group? Nobody wants to do that. Who, who wants to be poor in spirit? Nobody wants that. But if you say, who wants to be pure in heart? Man, we'd all raise our hands. We'd all be like, yes. Like, that's, that's a positive one. It's like the only positive one. And so some com commentators see this as, as like a, a sort of climax. They, they see Jesus expanding on it in the chapters ahead. Uh, one, one commentator says, if you add up the Beatitudes, here's what you see that the flourishing are both hungry and full at the same time. They're hungry for God's righteousness, and they're full of God's mercy. You see, that's actually the message of the gospel. The, the message of the gospel is a recognition that I am, in, I, I am in desperate need of righteousness. I am hungering and thirsting. I am poor in spirit. I don't have what it takes. I am hungering and thirsting for God to be at work. And then you find out that the mercy of God has been poured out abundantly 
and you can joyfully and humbly receive it. And it makes you a person who is hungry and full at the exact same time. And being hungry and full brings a purity in heart. Being pure in heart includes a willingness to trust God, a willingness to believe God. You know, the Bible likes to use this language, uh, tying belief and sight. The Bible frequently does this, where the idea of someone who is blind is someone who is apart from God, and then someone who can see is someone who's been made new, someone who's been brought in, who's been given spiritual life and spiritual sight. And the Bible likes that metaphor. It uses it a lot. Let, let, me, let me give you one, one example before we close. Hebrews chapter 11, and you're free to turn over there if you want to. But Hebrews chapter 11 starts off, and it tells us something pretty crazy. It says that faith is something that is, you, you, you are believing in something that you can't see. He, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. So it's, it's saying that this whole thing of trusting God, faith in God, involves not, not seeing clearly. It involves, faith is like, we, we can't see that perfectly. Paul says that we see in a mirror dimly. So we can see, but you can't see it clearly. And faith is putting your hope in God even when you can't see all the details. Then the writer of Hebrews from verse 4 through verse 12 gives us all these examples of people who live like that. It, it's Enoch and uh, Abraham and Sarah and all, all of these people who are like, they live their life trusting God. They live their life putting hope in God, putting faith in God, even when they couldn't see it. But then you get to verse 13, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says. These all died in faith. <laughs> they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Then down in verse 16, it says, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The writer of Hebrews says this, there are all of these people who have chosen to trust God. They've actually been willing to put their hope in God, to put their faith in something that they can't quite fully see. And guess what? They died and they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. It didn't come in this life. And the writer of Hebrews says, but I got great news for you. The city that they longed for, they recognized that this place was not right. They were aliens and strangers. They were sojourners on this earth. And what happened is they actually got the better city in the, in, in the afterlife. That that promise was kept. That all of their faith, as the Bible likes to say, became sight. You see, this will result, Jesus says, in seeing him face to face. The Bible loves that language. In Revelation 22, it says the people of God will see his face. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says we see now through a mirror dimly, but then we will see him face to face. You see, when you trust Jesus, when you have a heart that is willing to put your trust in Jesus, you are brought to spiritual life. You are given spiritual eyes. But even in that condition, you don't see clearly yet. Not yet. 
And like Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and Abel, you are going to die without receiving everything that you thought was going to come, without receiving all of the promises. But here's the good news. It's coming. That's the hope of the gospel, is that on the last day, you will see God. It might not seem like it's going to happen. I mean, how many times did Abraham probably ask that? A lot of times he thought that wasn't going to happen. But the pure in heart believe God. There's a willingness to trust him. And that is, you know, that, that his provision through Jesus is exactly what we need. So we finish our service with communion every Sunday. And the reason we do is to remind ourselves that this person right here, this, this Christ Jesus, broke his body and spilled his blood in order to reconcile you to God so that on the last day you will see him face to face. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to come take the bread and take the cup. If you're not a Christian, man, there's, there'll be some prayers on the screen and we invite you to receive those um, as some, some language to talk with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, this beatitude and for this journey with Jesus on the subject of, of purity, but not just purity in general, purity in heart the control center of our lives. God, actually having this, this willingness to, to trust you with that, to, to, to put ourselves in, in your hands, to have a, a willingness to, to pursue you with the decisions and the relationships uh, that, that, that we have. God, we, we recognize right now that we are in desperate need of your help. So we thank you first for Jesus. We thank you for sending him and for giving, uh, giving us what we so desperately needed, uh, the rescue that we could never find on our own. And then, God, we ask that you would give us hearts, that that direction, that willingness to trust day by day, uh, decision by decision. Um, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.